Welcome to the Astronaut Philosophy Podcast. For this series, I want to talk about some some really big topics. Depression, anxiety, trauma, spirituality, anomalous experience, or extraordinary experience, as it's referred to in literature. The paranormal, as we may call it in pop culture, the divine. These are immense topics, and I'm going to try to go through them as well as I can, but I want to I want to clear one thing up in particular because there's there seems to be a relationship between trauma and anomalous experience particularly around death I have a close friend of mine whose father committed suicide and one day, her mother came home to find her father in the bedroom, you know, years after the fact. I have other dear friends who lost a son, only to have him walk into the bedroom, uh, trailed by light, a kind of illuminating experience this was after he took his own life a couple months prior we're going to talk about some of these things but I want to clear up what I mean by that word trauma trauma is used pretty carelessly in the culture today, it's, uh, it's almost a point of pride or virtue. First, I just want to say that it's not a casual experience. When I use the word trauma, what I mean is having your foundations as a human being utterly ripped out. The pillars on which everything stands, crumble. What I mean by trauma is the world as you knew it is gone and it is never coming back. There are lots of things that can induce this state, this shattering disillusion It can happen in one awful event, or it can happen like a kind of Chinese water torture over time. But there are apparently moments where people are opened up against their will even to something 
very strange. We're gonna we're gonna talk about all these things, and I'm gonna talk about my experiences first because, well, partly and selfishly, that's kind of what this is about. I'm I'm tired of having a double life, and. I'm tired of a, a strange cultural paradigm that we're in. Uh, a paradigm that's maybe something that we'll discuss another time. Uh, there's one other thing I want to clear up before I discuss myself uh, anymore. And my feelings or potential insights. Maybe I'm being generous to myself there. Suffering and pain do not in themselves convey virtue. So just because I'm going to talk about my pain does not mean I'm virtuous. If there's anything special about me at all, it is my capacity for colossal fuck-ups. I don't have some special spiritual sense. I'm not an authority on anything. This is a personal confession and meditation. Let's get started. The other morning, I stepped outside and on the ground I saw a beautiful moth. It was flapping its wings and it was on its back, stuck in the mud. I walked over to it. I picked it up. And I sat it on a little patch of moss. Within seconds, it had frantically flapped itself back onto its back. And was helplessly doing the same thing. I picked it up again. I set it upright. And again, it flipped back over. Like it wanted nothing to do with life. Like the birds that were circling over it were welcome. I flipped it over one more time and, and then I turned my back on it and I left. I feel like this is my relationship with God. I don't use that word God often. It conveys a lot of baggage in a conversation. Whatever 
there is under this reality, whatever willful intelligence there might be, it is certainly beyond thought, beyond comprehension, and beyond language. So that word God is a simplification. And people worship the simplification, the image. And it becomes very hard to discuss and point to this thing that is beyond the word. Everything you say is theory laden, including everything I'm going to say and a lot of what I've already said. I've wondered after each of my experiences if something was trying to set me upright and I just didn't have the tools to stay there. What are the tools? Well, that's the perennial question. Each of the religious traditions would claim to have exactly those tools. The Christians, the Muslims, the ancient Hindu texts, the Buddhists. I've found useful tools in each of these things. But it's occurred to me maybe the tool that it's hardest to cultivate and grab hold of is faith. Faith in the thing you cannot see or at least that you cannot see all the time. Whatever this is, is played a game of peekaboo with me for a long time. And most people don't even get that. I've come to resent this arbitrary nature of it this person and not that person, this time and not that time. There are plenty of people in pain and who suffer trauma and they don't get a knock at the door from some cosmic hand. They just suffer and die and that's the end of it. Or maybe it's the beginning depending on what you think happens after that. The University of Virginia has a program. It's called the Center for Perceptual Studies. They study near-death experience. I'm not sure what to think about those experiences because I'm having a hard enough time handling conscious daily reality in this strange biological form my first experience occurred uninvited 
I was in a bad place. I had failed at pretty much everything in my early 20s. It was a few months before I went into Army Intelligence. I was driving home from work one day and a turquoise ball of fire fell from the sky. It appeared first. I was on 85 southbound. And I say fire because it wasn't crisp like a light bulb. It was, it was like, I guess like fire, but it was round. It was the size of a full moon. It was absolutely enormous. And it dropped to the tree line and it disappeared. I was on the phone at the time with my girlfriend, um, who would eventually become my wife. And that was special because it was a shared experience in that sense. It made it real because I was alone. Later, we began to share experiences. I hesitate to describe them here or now. Maybe, maybe just one. One day I was laying on the couch. This is a few weeks later. And I was awoken. I was, I had been taking a nap. I woke up uh, with a, a deep vibration, like somebody hit an on switch and plugged me into something. And it was all over my body, like every cell inside of me was alive and flowing with some kind of energy like a like a diesel engine was sat on my chest running and as you can imagine I was scared and I heard an inner voice and it said who are you and my fists were clenched And my eyes were shut as hard as I could shut them because I, I didn't want to open them. I didn't want to see. And suddenly it stopped. And when it stopped, the vibration had been so intense that I felt like I was floating. Like if you put your hand on a piece of heavy machinery and you leave it there, when you take it off, there's this strange feeling of lightness or numbness or that's kind of how it was and then my grandma knocked at the door and I had to pretend like nothing crazy had just happened and that's kind of how all this has been at the end of it you have to pretend like nothing 
crazy has happened and you have to try and live life and that can be very hard because you want to know you want so badly to know and then you wonder does it know that it's done this does it know that it would set off this interest passion need why would it do that and you go back is it like the moth is it setting me upright or is it amoral like Carl Jung's Job does it interfere without a particular care about you in particular as a person maybe it just makes itself known for stories like this. Again, I, I don't know how to talk about this without the presupposition that it has meaning because it feels so meaningful. We can do another episode on schizophrenia or hallucinations or now, psychology is still a very young science. We know very little about the brain, about the self, about consciousness. We know more than we knew a hundred years ago. But anyone who claims that we can just round up experiences like this and catalog them in a little box of pathologies and we can go about our business, well... If you say that, you're better at shutting your eyes than I am. There's a, a professor of uh, comparative religion at Rice University. His name is Jeffrey Kripal. He had a similar experience to the what I went through on the couch that day. He was in Calcutta, India. And from a dead sleep, he woke to find his whole body, as he described it, like he was being electrocuted. Except, he said he realized it wasn't electrocution. It was something alive. Like he was merging with something. He's written about this in books. It changed his life forever, and he's spent the rest of his career studying this strange border territory between religious experience, paranormal experience, and trauma. Trauma comes up again and again. Mark Twain. Mark Twain had a fascination with... These sorts of experiences or experiences of mind-to-mind -mind connection. He had a precognitive dream of his brother. He was at a funeral parlor and 
He saw his brother in a particular suit with a particular bouquet of flowers on his chest. Weeks later, his brother died in a, a bad accident and he walked into the funeral home to see his brother was wearing the same suit from a dream. And it turned out it was his suit, that his brother had borrowed the suit from him without his knowledge. And as he's sitting there trying to process that he's already dreamt this moment, he realizes the flowers are missing. And as he realizes this, a woman comes up and places the exact bouquet of flowers on his brother's chest. Eric Wargo is an anthropologist from Emory. He has this idea called the long self. That if we take our models of science seriously, and if we integrate, the, that we do not know what time is, past and future and present, and that this world we live in of separate people and separate objects at a certain level disappears, particles disappear into energy. Based on the experiences I've described and, and his interpretation of scientific models, physical models of nature, he proposes that your future self is communicating to you. It's telling you about the trauma. It's telling you something bad is coming. And we can look at people's dreams or intuitions and all sorts of tragedies from 9-11 or the Titanic or World War One. Carl Jung had a premonition of World War I, and he thought he was going crazy. And then it happened. One thing I realize is I may never know exactly what the source of this thing is. As I said before, knowing God, the divine, the other, whatever you like to call it, knowing it in terms of capturing it and knowledge, that's impossible. But we can look at the effects. What does it do to a person to glimpse that? What does it do to their psyche? What does it do to a community of people? Is that what religion is? Someone like Paul has an experience, writes it down. We spend the next 2,000 years organizing it. I think if we look at the effects of these experiences, one thing is for certain is it causes us to question, to be humble for those of us who are open 
to such possibilities. And if we're not open, if we're not listening, well, that's the end of that. And I'm not talking to you, and this thing isn't talking to you either. Assuming that there is a thing and that it's talking. <laughs> if thought is a kind of network which we all share, ideas, language, Maybe something wants us to question and to slow down in this insane nuclear age <laughs> of you know, interconnectedness, interdependency. Everything can collapse at a moment. Maybe we need to take stock. Or maybe... The projection of purpose is just what a primate naturally does when it encounters the unknown. But if I don't project a purpose, I fall back into the chasm of the depression and anxiety, meaninglessness, suffering. And that is not a pleasant place. There's a psychologist and uh, religious scholar. His name is Robert Moore. He was out of University of Chicago. And he gave a series of lectures called The Psychology of Satan. And in it, he describes the kind of nagging, killer voice that can exist in us. That can tell us we're worthless, that we're nothing, and nothing is good enough. We can internalize this from a bad experience in childhood, maybe some parental abuse, or maybe a peer abuse, or the endless traumas that I've already alluded to. We internalize this, this awfulness, and it becomes like a separate personality. This idea of different personalities inside of us is, is well established in psychology, family systems theory, for example. The idea of complexes in, in young Freud also tried to divide the ego and the id, the superego. We can see this in extreme behaviors when we get caught up, for example, in addiction or narcissism or clinical depression when it's like a rigid part of the, the self that isn't the true self straps in maybe the divine is the only way out of that and if it's not 
the express purpose of it, well, then maybe we can use it to break out. Because if we don't break out, we don't survive. Interestingly, Robert Moore died of suicide. So, I think his insight into this was deeply personal. I think that's all I want to say for this session. If you're still with me, thank you, and we'll continue the journey.
Smiles a mermaid I can hear and 